Uh, this morning's reading comes from Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted... To us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east, one, east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east winter are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. 
This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of uh, Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, earth, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put food in the cities. He put in every city food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Thank you, Ryan. That was a great job reading that long passage. The exaltation of Joseph in our Genesis study just happens to align perfectly with our celebration of Resurrection Sunday. Jesus, in his life with his disciples, taught us that all Scripture was about him and that everything that the prophets wrote was concerning him. And so we, as we come to the Word of God, are always looking to see what is this saying to us about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the perfect and great hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the knowledge of it, that we would live our lives according to it, that we would know what has been firmly secured by you, and so walk in obedience, in accordance with what is going to take place. Lord, this morning we want to lift up those who cannot be here, especially those who are sick and those who have any other concerns 
Lord, we ask that you would be our supply. We look to you for provision, supernatural and supernaturally through your church as you cause our hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your Son and so love one another. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding this morning by your Spirit as we look at your Word and that you would do this for your own glory, that your name would be great in Camrose and in Alberta, in Canada, and in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. The pilgrimage of Joseph, God's suffering servant, from son to slave and then down into the pit before being exalted unto rulership, foreshadows the story of the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who, Philippians 2, 7 to 11, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Previously, Joseph was assured of the presence of God with him. God is with us, Emmanuel. And it is the presence of God that brings life into the place of death, honor instead of humiliation, taking us through tribulation to glory. Despite the presence of God, Joseph was humiliated, thrown into the prison pit and forgotten. But this is what laid the foundation for his exaltation. Figuratively, Joseph was buried and the world moved on. But God not only restored him, but elevated him to the point that all in Egypt recognized his wisdom and were commanded to bow down before him. In this, Joseph prefigures Christ Jesus, God's own wisdom, who astonishingly was raised from the cross to rule the world so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And this pattern of humility and exaltation is the pattern today for all saints. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 reads, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Our passage this morning is the climax of the Joseph story, a coming together of every earthly thing that has been promised to him by God. The Joseph narrative continues after this as well, but it's in, then in relation to what has been promised to his family and regarding God's promise for Israel. Their elevation and rescue comes as a result of what God accomplishes here for Joseph. The prologue of this climactic episode sets the stage. I'm not going to read the whole chapter again. It's a long one. But uh, verses 1 to 8, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And then skipping ahead, it says, verse 8, so in the morning his spirit was troubled. 
And he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. This prologue, setting the stage, contains a message key to the entire chapter. Before trust will be placed in God's interpretation and Joseph's wise plan of action to rescue Egypt and therefore Israel, the power of the present age must be rendered helpless before the inscrutable purposes of God. Pharaoh is troubled. Up until now, he has called all the shots, deciding even who lives and who dies. He represents even the authority under which Joseph was enslaved and then imprisoned. One like this, who can order the execution of his subjects on a whim, who can imprison people and then let them go when he decides, is seldom accustomed to unwelcome messages. He's more used to sending messages and demanding answers, and he's used to having people tell him the information in the way he wants to hear it. But the dream takes the initiative away from Pharaoh. He receives messages. He does not generate or authorize them. And for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to quickly summarize both the tellings of the dreams and their interpretation from God. Both the cows and ears of grain represent bountiful food in Egypt. Egypt was known as the breadbasket of the world for the vast majority of human history, for the reasons we'll explore in just a moment. Seven thin cows eat up the seven plump cows. Plump is also the Hebrew word for beautiful, so just, I love that. Beautiful cows, plump cows. And seven thin ears of grain eat up seven plump ears, which would be horrifying to watch in the case of the cows, and perhaps even more disturbing in the case of the grain. I can't quite wrap my brain around it. But these represent seven years of plenty, which would be followed then by seven years of famine, so severe that the first... Uh, seven years of plenty would be quickly used up and then forgotten completely. Now, we cannot grasp Pharaoh's trouble until we understand that the Nile River, which is repeated four times in the narrator's telling and two more times in Pharaoh's telling, was not only a geographical reference, but an expression of the imperial power of fertility. In the ancient world, the fertility of the land was attributed to the king. The king was thought to serve as a mediator between the people and their gods, or as in the case of Pharaoh, was himself considered to be a god. One pharaoh said, I produce the grain. Because I was beloved by the grain god, no one was hungry in my years. And so the fertility of Egypt was also unusually reliable because it did not depend on rainfall for its food production, but the flooding of the Nile. The Nile River has two different sources, both the Levant and the Sedan, and so it was quite unlikely that both sources would fail in the same year. But to the ancients, this meant that the gods that were connected to the Nile and its annual flooding were considered to be quite powerful. And this reliable fertility was then also credited year after year to the Pharaoh's authority. The Nile, the source of Egypt's 
And so Pharaoh's power, fertility, and life is now here characterized by death. The Nile will give seven years of prosperity, but the seven years of drought also emerge from the river and will eat up the first seven years. And so these dreams assault the very heart of Pharaoh's claim to authority. The failure of the Nile means that the empire does not have in itself the power of life. And later in Ezekiel 29, God says against Egypt, Because you said the Nile is mine and I made it, therefore behold, I am against you and against your stream, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. The exposure of Egypt's fraudulent claim to power is intensified by the climax of verse 8, when the greatest of Pharaoh's musicians, magicians, not, their magi- not his musicians, his magicians, they all fail to interpret the dream. The Egyptian way of knowing fails. Exposed as frauds, they are useless to perceive genuine divine communication. The best wisdom of the empire is dysfunctional, helpless before the inscrutable power of God. Pharaoh, it turns out, does not have the power he claimed over the fertility of the Nile. But knowledge is also power, and the imperial knowledge has failed as well. Pharaoh is confronted by both his failure to control and his failure to know. The same thing happened at the birth of Jesus, Matthew 2, 1 to 3, when like Pharaoh, King Herod was also troubled because he did not have adequate knowledge and he cannot manage his own future. With Pharaoh, as with Herod, the power of the empire is put into question and refuted by the dream. And this opening unit then sets the stage for Joseph's exaltation. The dreams penetrated the worldly systems with unauthorized and unacceptable messages. The substance of which is that the claims of the empire are fraudulent. The emperor has no clothes. And so in God's mercy, worldly power and worldly ways of knowing are exposed as lies. And never in so profound and dramatic fashion than in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, in which, Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. In adult Sunday school this morning, we were reading from 2 Corinthians where it says that Christ Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. And this is what is attacked in Egypt. Before God begins to reveal His power and wisdom through Joseph, He first utterly devastates all the power and wisdom that is attributed to Pharaoh and to the Nile and to the gods of Egypt. On the other side of Joseph's exaltation is the epilogue, verses 46 to 57, which outline the success of Joseph's mission. Again, we've already read it. Everything that he set his hand to because the Lord was with him succeeded. His plan was a success. Egypt becomes a great success. Later chapters will explain that Egypt even comes to own all the lands around. Everyone who can travel for food to Egypt ends up selling their land to Egypt because Egypt is is so blessed through what Joseph does here. And during this time, before the year famine came, it says, verse 50, two sons were born to Joseph. 
Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. In this final section, Joseph is then sharply contrasted with the pitiful Pharaoh of verses 1 to 8. That sorry Pharaoh destined to death by the famine. But after the interruption, which is God's sovereign plan for Joseph, there is life and well-being even in the midst of famine. And even as Egypt moves from fruitfulness to famine, Joseph is increasingly fruitful, fathering two sons, which will themselves become the fathers of two of Israel's tribes. He names his firstborn Manasseh, which is derived from the Hebrew for forget, saying, verse 51, God has made me forget all my hardship." and all my father's house. Now, Joseph is not saying that he has forgotten his father and his family. In fact, it's quite clear that in giving his sons Hebrew names, he has not forgotten his father's house. But that signified that his faith in the Lord was as strong as ever in spite of his suffering and in spite of his success. Whereas the famine in Egypt would be so severe that they would forget the former bounty... The reverse is true for Joseph. Do you see that here? They, Egypt will forget how good it was. Joseph will forget how bad it was. It's reversed for Joseph. So great is his exaltation according to the plan of God that his former suffering in his father's house is forgotten. A light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17, that had prepared him for glory. The name of his second son has a similar meaning in relation to Joseph's suffering now in Egypt. And so while his first son helped him forget the suffering in his father's house, his second son, Ephraim, which is derived from the Hebrew for made me fruitful, saying, verse 52, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so though Egypt also seemed like a disaster for Joseph, afflicted there as he was for 13 years, from 17 to age 30, this place of his torment had become ground zero for his great blessing. And then the end of the chapter indirectly brings Joseph's family back into the picture. Joseph has been elevated. Joseph has received from God what was promised to him. Now it's going to be about his brothers. The focus will transition to his brothers and especially to Judah as God rescues them and transforms Judah according to his promises. God controlled the economy of Egypt. This was the world's superpower. And God controlled the economy of Egypt to bring Joseph to power and thereby prepare for the migration of Israel to Egypt in order to rescue them from the famine and perfectly position them for all of God's plan for them. In fact, God had told Abraham years before this that Israel would suffer for 400 years in Egypt. God has it all set out according to His plan before now. The main action then in our chapter takes place 
in the middle section, between the, the futility of Egypt and the well-being in the midst of famine of the epilogue, there is the interpretation, the plan, and the exaltation of Joseph. We'll first look at the interpretation. We've already summarized it, but let me point out one more thing from it now. When asked if he can interpret the dream, Joseph immediately corrected Pharaoh with regards to the true source of the meaning, saying, verse 16, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This conviction was then reiterated throughout the interpretation, which both begins and ends with God. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And twice in verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This emphasis on that is the Lord God who will do these things would have been remarkable in the courts of Pharaoh. He probably hasn't heard anything like this before. He is a, considered a god. But he is nothing like this God of the Hebrews. After the embarrassment of Egyptian power and knowledge by the message of God in the dream, then Joseph comes in as a faithful witness mediating the message of God. The power and wisdom of God comes in to, to fill in this void. You see, there's a vacuum now created. And God does this in His mercy. He creates a vacuum where we, we lose our trust in the, the things of this world. We lose our trust in the systems and in the leaders. And we're not sure where we stand and we're not sure where to find solid ground. And that is just the exact soil that this message of the gospel comes into. And so Joseph, the faithful witness, the suffering servant who is wise in his obedience, mediates the message of God, and he makes candid and unembarrassed statements to introduce a new reality to Pharaoh. Something the church is called to today in this vacuum where people don't know where they stand, they don't know what they can trust. We have the power and wisdom of our God. He makes this statement to Pharaoh, a, a, a statement that could cost him his life. The future in Egypt does not depend on Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. God knows. God chooses. And even in his plan, Joseph's going to be like, you're going to need a guy who's discerning and wise. <laughs> he doesn't say, you, Pharaoh, should be discerning and wise. He says, you're going to need a different guy. You don't have the guy. God knows and God chooses. He has revealed what he is about to do. The narrative announces the free, sovereign God is at work in the very center of Egyptian power and existence, ruling over life and death, ruling over fertility and famine, and in all human authority. This Enormous claim is not a marginal incident in the Bible. This is not just a one-off story. I hope you can see that we are confronted here with the very premise of much of biblical faith. God has the capacity to work despite and through any opposition. This is the basis of all claims that God is sovereign, even while others seem to have power. This same premise is indispensable to the disruption of Easter. 
Even age-old powers that seem insurmountable are insignificant, even death. After this illuminating interpretation comes the plan. And verse 33 is a significant pivot point here from revelation to reaction. Joseph gives the interpretation that God has given, and then wise Joseph is prepared with a concrete response. This is also so important. Joseph knew God's revelation, boldly declared it to Pharaoh, and then he advised him to conform to what God is about to do. This is just to follow the logical consequences of the dream's interpretation. If you think about it, Joseph doesn't have this amazing plan. It's, this isn't tricky. There's going to be seven good years followed by seven bad years. What should we do? This isn't like rocket science. All he's suggesting is that they live in conformity with what has been announced to be true. So also we today. Will we live in conformity to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or will we ignore it? Will we deny it? Will we pretend as though it is not so? And so Joseph's plan is just logical. It's, this is what God says is going to happen, so let's do the thing. And the purpose of God is fixed in the dream, predestined according to His Word. He has determined beforehand how this will all work out for Joseph's good, God's glory, and the rescue of His covenant people. But the fixed purposes of God are no occasion for human abdication. It requires bold action. The fixed purpose and intervention of God does not end human responsibility, but it sets it in a context where a whole new course of action is required. This is faith. When we believe God and take Him at His word, it changes our trajectory entirely. It doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. When we know that it is fixed by God, we know how it's going to work out, and we know how to live in response to that, in conformity with that, just the logical action. God's There's no paradox, sorry, between the fixed plan of God and human action, but they come together in a faith that believes that the outcome is secure. God's purpose is not the end of human planning, but it's the grounds for it. That God's plan is above human's plan does not mean that there should not be human planning. It means that all human planning must be responsive and faithful to God's plan. For instance, and this is just totally ad-lib, but for instance, when God tells us that the way people will be saved is when we go and preach the gospel to them, He's not moving that into the realm of human ability and responsibility where we are the ones who are bringing that to fruition. He has already stated that it will happen when we share the gospel with those whom God is already saving, they will respond. This spurs us to action. It doesn't keep us from it. It tells us that despite rejection after rejection after rejection, despite people thinking ill of us, despite people saying ill of us, we know that it will work out exactly as God has planned it. It means prayer is not insignificant. When God commands us to pray for something, we know that we're praying to the one who has fixed the end. And so if He tells us to pray, what should we do? We should pray. Prayer is not so that we can get God's plan to change. Prayer is not so that we can make it so God's plan is able to happen. Prayer is a logical response to the statements of God, to take Him at His word. 
Finally, we have the exaltation of Joseph. Genesis 41, 38 to 45. One sec. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only regards the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh speaks three times, while Joseph says nothing at all, which is to show that God brought this about, and it wasn't Joseph through some strategy or cunning. God is accomplishing what he promised to do for Joseph. The plan Joseph outlined, the, the right and logical response and conformity to what has been revealed, his plan requires a discerning and wise man, a description which is used several times in Proverbs and which Pharaoh has already proved that Egypt lacked. And so in realizing this, Pharaoh must now unwittingly choose the one whom God has already chosen. Remember, this was all announced to Joseph over 13 years ago. Discerning and wise is not only a description of the right man, but an announcement of a new ruling agenda, a ruling agenda that did not yet exist in Egypt at this time. The chosen must act in the context of God's sovereignty in the dreams. How can there be one who rules uh, with this uh, discernment and wisdom? They just rule as though the Word of God is true. It's not this brilliance, it's not this chief intellect, it's the discerning and wise one who just lives as though what God has said is going to come to pass. And so Joseph's very simple plan is very successful because he knows the outcome. The description then of Joseph's elevation to rule through tribulation is shockingly similar, uh, similar to the rewards Jesus promises in Revelation, to all who endure through tribulation as his faithful witnesses. Though he is chosen by God, Joseph actually lacks every other feature which would be required to rule in Egypt. He has no social status, no wealth, no noble pedigree. He is not even Egyptian. And this is a problem. <laughs> but all of this can be granted to him by Pharaoh's investiture. It begins when his head and face are shaved and his clothes are changed before he enters Pharaoh's presence, symbolizing his changing social status. Hebrews wore longer hair and beards. Egyptians shaved everything and then wore fake little beards. And so he's shaved, he starts to look like an Egyptian, and he's changed in his clothes. He is then later clothed in fine linen garments, uh, recalling the coat that his brothers removed from him and the shirt which Potiphar's wife ripped off him. 
robes of rule are restored to Joseph. He has granted Pharaoh's signet ring in order to rule with the king's own authority, and a golden chain is set about his neck, signifying his rank, status, and office. And chariots were the limousines of the day. He has a driver now. It's arranged that Joseph will ride in style with men to guard him and clear the way before him. Now he looks the part. But the final two elements of Joseph's exaltation are even more compelling. He is then recognized as an Egyptian with a unique Egyptian name, which probably meant God speaks and lives. And then he is granted noble status through marriage into the elite of Egyptian nobility. And so all of these gifts connect very closely with what is promised to those granted faith in Jesus Christ. Cleansed from impurity and clothed in the fine linen of righteous works, Revelation 19.8. Believers are adopted into the family of God through the marriage of Christ Jesus to His church, Revelation 21.2. Those who conquer by enduring persecution are granted a new name to reflect their new nature. And this is found in both Revelation 2.17 and 3.12. They are granted to rule with the symbols of Christ's own authority. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. A longer reading there would show us that he gives them his rod of rule. So believers, those who endure to the end, receive Christ's crown and his rod of rule, and then they rule with him. Amazingly, The only glaring difference between Joseph's exaltation and that of all of Christ's saints in the end is that Pharaoh grants Joseph all the things pertaining to his rule with the exception of one thing, his throne. Genesis 41.40. He says, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Read with me Revelation 3.21. Read this out with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Isn't that amazing? And all of this amazing exaltation awaits those who, with Christ Jesus, the suffering servant, endure tribulation for the glory set before them in the resurrection. Those Colossians 2.12 who have been buried with him in baptism, will also be raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ Jesus exposes the falsehood of earthly power brokers and worldly ways of knowing. They are all confronted by the one, Romans 4, 17, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Introduced to the power of the truth maker, we must live in response and faithful to the inexorable plan of God. Because Jesus lives, the powers of this world are put to an open shame. Because Jesus lives, 
We can know well-being and peace despite the famine, whatever hardships surround us. Because He lives, we are made able to triumph through uncertainty and trials of many kinds, knowing the exaltation that awaits us in Him. Romans 8, 16 to 18, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see how this is the message of Joseph's exaltation through tribulation. Thirteen years, it's a long time to be a slave and then a prisoner. He is then exalted by God because he's received the word of God. He can be faithful. And as God is exposing the falsehoods of, of the powers of Egypt and the wisdom of Egypt, the plan becomes clear. The response becomes clear. Let us live today in response to the word of our God. And like Joseph, who named his sons, I've forgotten former pain, and now my fruitfulness is in the land that was my suffering. We can know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory, the exaltation that we receive through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which always directs us to you. There is, is no point in the Scripture where you are pointing us to ourselves and our own responsibility to save ourselves, our, our own ability to turn things around. You are constantly bringing us to put our trust in you, to believe your word and live according to it, to be who we are in you. And so, Lord, as we have read it in your word, we now ask that your spirit would give us illumination, cause us to see the areas in our own lives where we need to transform, where we need to start to live in conformity with the truth that you have announced. Reminded of Judah, who though you had announced that you were going to wipe out the Canaanites, intermarried with them, and you rescued him, but God, rescue us, we pray where we have assimilated to a world and a culture that you will destroy, forgive us and turn us, that our hope would be in you, that we would live in conformity with the truth that you have revealed. You have commanded us not to put our trust in all the things that the world offers, not because you don't want us to enjoy good things, but because you know the outcome of them. And so, Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment to live in response to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.